As we come into this, the final Sunday of 2012, man, there are a lot of things that have happened this year. God has certainly been good to us, as is His character, but we've endured a variety of things. And As you look around, you see a lot of people uh, that, that just aren't here, aren't on the stage, they're sick, they're struggling with things. Think about people that have had surgeries this year. We think about the people that are really just suffering from this horrible strain of the flu that's traveling around and, and, and making its visits to all the homes in Greenville. Um, and so I want to think about those this morning. I want us to pray towards, towards their healing, but I also want us to, to move our hearts and direct our thoughts towards what God would do with us in 2013. Not that we would begin to make a, a promise of of reclaiming the holes in our belt loop that we've given up in 2012. Not that we would uh, make a pledge to ourselves that we would do better in our use of time, but in 2013 that we would begin to think, what would God have me do in 2013? Because next Sunday, we're going to offer up an offering to God, not of finances, but of ourselves. And we're going to turn those in. We're going to have everybody fill out what their offering is going to be to the Lord in 2013. Because gone are the days of empty promises. Gone are the days when we can just sit idly by and show up Sunday after Sunday and take in and grow in knowledge and check off a box. It is time to step into the game. And next Sunday, everybody's going to fill out a commitment to the Lord. This isn't a commitment to the church. This is a commitment between you and God. So you spend this time, spend this week praying, God, what would you have me do in 2013? to honor and glorify you, to make me less and to make him more, because that's what we're here for. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would uh, God, be with those who are hurting, be with those who are uh, still recovering from surgeries. God, be with uh, the Jones family as they were at the hospital this morning with Levi. God, I pray that you would uh, be with those who are still struggling with the flu and with the nagging colds and just all the things that go on around or just those who are just simply exhausted from all the festivities of the season. God, as we prepare to close the door in 2012 and we look ahead to 2013, I pray that you would help us just to, to find purpose in our walk with you, that you would lead us to an objective, that you would lead us to a lifestyle, that you would lead us into becoming the people that you would have us to be in this, in this community. And God, that for every Christian in this place, that you would put on their heart what you would have them to do for you in 2013. That they would think less of themselves and more of you. That they would think less of their ends and more of your glory. And Father, I pray that you would be with us in this time that you would help us to focus on your word as James gives it to us. And Father, I pray that you would help me to adequately communicate this text. God, I pray your spirit would move in this place. And Father, we continue to ask that you would move all across this town, that you would raise up men and women who would boldly stand for you, that you would be at work in the churches of this community, eradicating lostness and ministering to a hurting and dying and lost world. And Father, we just ask that you would just help us to become a people worthy to be called Christians. Father, we pray these things in your Son's name. 
Amen. As we, as we finish out this year, some of us are just so excited about 2013 rolling around. And, and, and as we make it through the holiday season, a lot of the children have, have just been, I mean, this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas is just kind of intolerable for them. There's this date coming, and they know all these presents are going to be associated with that, and so it's very difficult to be patient in that time. And if you're anything like me, it's very difficult to be patient in that time when your radio station forgets the type of music they're supposed to play, and they play the same six or seven Christmas songs over and over and over again for a full month, and it's just, it's infuriating. And, and you find it very difficult to be patient. You know, as Valerie and I seek to be godly parents, as we seek to raise our children in, in a godly home, one of the things we always tell our son, we don't tell Graham very much because he's... Well, he's not very good at his English yet. He's only nine months old. Uh, I really wish you guys would give him a break. I mean, he's doing the best he can. But one of the things that we find ourselves saying over and over again is be patient. And that's, that's waiting without complaining. To be patient is to wait without complaining. But it's almost like I, I say that to my son, but then something happens. I'm at the gas station, and the person in front of me decides to pay with cash. At the, at the pump pay, I'm just thinking, what, man, please, please go by, get a credit card, get a debit card if you're not into credit, but just, just swipe the card, and, and, and this whole thing could be so much faster, because they go in, they browse the aisles, they pick up chips, and they're like, I didn't know they still made combos, I'm going to get me some of them, and they come back out, they've got a big gulp, a bag of combos, some pretzels, and, and some antacid, um, because they're going to need that when they finish that bag of combos, because they're not as good as they remember. And so all these things in our life really test our patience. They really push us to, to not lose it. But nothing tests our patience like suffering. Nothing tests our patience and really pushes our buttons like suffering. Whether it be health, whether it be in the workplace, or whether it be in the family. Suffering makes it very difficult to be patient. We see today we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and James touches on the subject of patience. Now this passage comes right on the heels of the first part of chapter 5, and James addresses it to the rich people. There's some discussion as to whether or not these rich folks are Christians, but James writes to them, and we hear of the abuses that the rich put on everybody around them. They make people work for them. But they don't pay them. They're oppressing people and they're using their money and their influence to make people's lives pretty miserable. And then James turns from that scenario. So he kind of sets that and talks about the judgment that the rich people are going to have to face. And then he opens up in verse 7 of chapter 5. And he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard, the, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. 
and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he finishes talking about the abuses of the rich people, right? And then he opens it up. He says, this is the reality of what you live in, essentially. He says, you guys are obviously not wealthy. You guys are not the most popular in the Roman Empire. You're, you're facing persecution from the government. You're facing oppression from the rich people in society over you. And I offer you this word. Be patient. He comes out and he tells them, he commands them, he says, be patient. Now, he's not talking about a passive resignation. James isn't telling them, well, I've got news for you guys. This, too, shall come to pass. Just just wait it out. You just sit back and wait it out. What he's telling them with his repeated references to the coming of Christ is you wait with anxious anticipation. You see, it's not that they just sit back and they resign themselves to everything is just going to eventually take care of itself, but they wait expectantly on the return of the Lord. He tells them, he says, be patient, brothers. Until what time? Now, it's interesting because if we were to talk to somebody and offer them some wisdom, say you're having a rough time at work and and it's budget time or it's end of year time, so everybody's getting in their, their financials, you say, hey, man, It's all going to be over soon. Just wait it out. Or if you and the wife are having a rough patch, somebody might say, you know, just just wait three or four days. I'm sure everything will get better. And so there's some period of time that we put on the end of it, right? And so we're good when it's just, man, I can do this for a month. I used to always tell myself, I can do anything for six months. I don't know where I came to the six-month mark, but I always said, I can do anything for six months. And after I experienced some pretty miserable things for six months, I started saying, I can do anything for three months. And after I experienced some pretty miserable things for three months, I said, I can do anything for like 30 seconds. And it's, um, I'm, I'm pretty good at it, actually. 30 seconds. I'm thinking probably somebody breaking my femur and shooting me in the other leg, I wouldn't be cool with that for 30 seconds. But most things, uh, 30 seconds worth, I'm, I'm pretty good. But James writes this group, and he tells them, he says, be patient until when? He doesn't say be patient until the rich people finally come around. He writes to me, he says, don't, don't just be patient until the Roman Empire becomes a little kinder. See, in the future, this guy named Constantine, he's going to come and things are going to get better for you. He doesn't hang out this concrete thing of what's going to happen, but he tells them, you be patient until Christ comes again. And you'll remember that in Matthew 24 and verse 36 that Jesus himself didn't know the date and the time and the hour, and apparently the Mayans didn't either, to when everything would end, when Jesus would come back and he would set things right. You see, the, the patience that they're expected to extend is all the way until Christ returns, because at the return of Christ, every wrong will be righted. Every person that is worthy to be judged will be judged, and everything will be changed, and everything will be radically different. You see, they're told to wait with the expectation of the return of Christ, and then James turns and he uses a metaphor from farming. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You see, in the culture James is writing to, they received early rains in October and November, right about the time they're doing all the planting season. And then the late rains would roll in 
March and April, right before the harvest time. Now, the interesting thing to note is if they missed the early rain or they didn't get a good late rain, the season the following year was completely shot. The season the following year was completely shot. So when that farmer went out and he he broke up the soil and he took the seeds and he planted the seeds down in there and he covered them up, he has some faith, he has some understanding that there's nothing he can do to bring about life in this plant. Now, farming in our day is much more high-tech and advanced since we see people with, with pretty fantastic irrigation systems. We see people in certain parts of the world trying to reclaim seawater and to use that to water crops. But they didn't have this technology. They didn't have all these fancy things done. And so all they were relying on is the rain. And so this farmer goes out and he commits himself to a great deal of work. He and his household and those people he employs to a great deal of work to break up this ground, to plant the seeds, all on the hope, all on the expectation that the rain is going to come and that God is going to bring growth. And the early rain comes, and he's thinking, good, the early rain has come, but then he's got to wait. December rolls through, January rolls through, February rolls through, March comes, and he's thinking, where is that second rain? You see, you and I have a seed implanted in us, and we, we wait on the movement of God in our lives, and we are faithful to discharge those things that God has put us in charge of. But we still wait for the return of Christ. And you see, this, this idea that, that Christ is coming back is, is so much easier for us to, to think about when, when things are bad. You'll notice when the news cycle really turns pretty sour and all these headlines come in that aren't very favorable to our understanding and our moral outlook and our Christianity, people sign off on Facebook and they always say, you know, come Lord Jesus, come. But man, when things are going great and, and the economy's booming and, and, and maybe some advancement breaks out and we're able to cure some form of cancer and we see all these awesome things happening, people are finding liberation, people are finding freedom, we see thousands of people come to the Lord We say, wait, Jesus, wait. God, I just want this thing to to keep going on. Surely things are going well. And so we forget that even in those times when things are going well, there's always this idea that at the return of Jesus, no matter how well things are going for us here, they will pale in comparison to the new kingdom that, that Jesus will usher in. It will pale in comparison to the new kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in. And so at verse 8, James again returns to this idea of being patient. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's almost like he wrote them and James knew this group of people. And so he starts off verse 7 and he says, hey, be patient. The Lord is coming. And then he gives them the metaphor about the farmer And then he turns again in verse 8, and he says, hey, look, just just so we're clear on this, I'm very serious about you guys being patient. He says, you need to have the type of dedication, you you need to have the type of intestinal fortitude of this farmer who is so determined that he goes out and he plants a seed with no ability to bring about change. See, our, our trust and our patience 
is so firmly founded in the return of Jesus. And James says, be patient. And then he gives them this command. He says, establish your hearts. James tells them, look, don't be wavering in your attitude. Make a firm decision. Take a decisive act to establish your hearts. Be courageous. That's how some of the translations have rendered it. Man, do something daring for God. Do something that when other people look at it, they would say, man, that's a a reckless attitude. And you say, no, that's a life impacted by Christ. Do something for God. And then James shows them how they are to have that steadfast heart. You see, it's not that they go out and they they begin thinking of all the things that they can change in their character. They begin thinking of all the, the ways they might move and shape their personality. You see, to have steadfastness of heart is brought about when we have expectancy at the coming of the Lord. And James tells them, he says, that, that it's near, that Jesus is near for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's think about this. So James, James is writing this, let's say, uh, 60 A.D. or so. And so Jesus crucified late 30s or so. And so 20, 30 years later, James is writing this. Everybody knows that when Jesus left, he told them he was coming, he was coming back, right? You see that in Acts. You see that in John. We, we see this idea of this expectancy of Christ's return. But it's more than 20 or 30 years later for us. It's almost a couple thousand years later for us. And unlike the gap between between November and December, the gap between Thanksgiving and Christmas, this isn't a definitive amount of time. But what we see is James tells them, and Jesus is just right here. He is stationed and ready for his return. And when we live our lives with the understanding that Christ is right there, when we live our lives with the understanding that he is already at hand, not that he is coming in the future, but he is already on his way, but has not arrived yet. And we live our lives in a radically different way. You see, when we live our lives with this understanding that some point in the future, maybe for our children's children or our grandchildren's children, Christ will return, then we end up having a Christianity that's very different from the one written about in the New Testament. You see, over and over again in the New Testament, we see this idea that we are to live with a heightened sense of expectancy. We see this idea that the coming return of Jesus should affect the way that we live our lives, should affect the way that we engage in the marketplace, should affect the way that we speak to and love on one another, and should affect the way that we do church. And that's the point that James wants to drive into them. But you and I both know that there's one thing about being patient. It's that in the midst of suffering, our patience finds itself with a very, very short fuse. And we have a really hard time being patient. And one of the ways this affects us, as James so aptly points out in verse 9, is in the form of 
groaning or grumbling or complaining. And so we find ourselves doing church, doing life in community with other people, and we're, we're suffering, we have all these stressors in our lives, and then people come along that just, man, they irritate us to death. Is you know, it's this idea that you're like, man, if I could just beat the ever-loving snot out of you and have you not realized I did it, and then we could go back, that would really help me to get this stress out. But would, would you mind standing there while I just pummel you for a little while? You're not down with that. Okay. Um, well, let me know if that changes, because I, I really do want to pummel you for a little while. It's this idea that when we do life together in community with other people, it, it's, it's hard to get along, right? I mean, as you look around, even this body here today, there are probably people that you see and you're like, man, I am so glad they didn't come over and shake my hand and say, I probably won't see you till next year. And you're thinking, yeah, man, I hope I don't see you for a couple of years. Or you run into people in the community and you're like, oh, man, I wonder if I could kick them in the shin really hard and then blame it on my wife. Because nobody hits a woman. And this idea that it's, it's, it's almost natural, right? And so James writes to these people who are facing uh, oppression from the rich in the community. They're facing persecution from their government. And he tells them, be patient. Say, okay, we can, we can do that. But surely we're entitled to, to share things in love with our brothers when they, when they get on our nerves. You see, we love one another. And so we just want to point out the imperfections of those around us. Because we love them. And hey, I'm just offering an opinion to you, but when you smack that gum, it makes me want to slap you. Just an opinion. Just want to love you for a little while. You see, we say the same thing happen in church. We see the same thing happen here, where one of us has an idea of how things should be. And we live in community with those people, but we're not satisfied allowing them to have their idea because we want them to be just like us. And so we begin grumbling against one another. You see, grumbling just feels so natural, doesn't it? It's almost like a, a pop-off valve. When the, when the pressure gets too much, when we can't handle the patience anymore and being patient, we just... We just explode and we just let it go on somebody. And we, so we have this case of verbal diarrhea all over somebody. And it stinks and it's nasty. And if you've ever received one of these things, you know what this is. I worked as a, a mechanics helper when I, not long after I graduated college as I was starting seminary. And the guy I worked for, I don't think he had a, a pop-off valve. He just stayed angry all the time. And there was one day in particular where I was helping an electrician change out some things around the shop. Uh, mechanics helper is kind of a loose term for everything that nobody wants to do, you do. And so I'm standing on the forks of this, this forklift, and he's got me up, and I'm changing the eye on these things. And the mechanic is looking for me because he needs somebody to sweep up his bay or something like that, or needs somebody to, to pummel for a little while. And so he's just, you know, just steady stream of expletives over and over and over again. Where is that sorry bleepity bleepity bleep and whatever and he's so lazy and whatever. I mean, I'm standing like 15 feet in the air on two little forks thinking, man, it would be so easy if I just fell. Workman's comp, I wouldn't have to be here, I wouldn't have to take this intolerable cruelty from this guy. And so the forklift operator, he and I have been, been talking for a little while and 
telling him, you know, I feel called to the ministry, I'm going to seminary. And so the mechanic comes over, and the forklift operator tells him, man, you don't need to talk to this guy like that. He's going to be a preacher. He is, you know, he's a man of God, a godly guy. And the mechanic said, well, I've been talking like this my whole life, and if he can't handle it, he needs to find another job. And I thought, man, you are just so friendly, and I, I love you so much, and I'm not going to grumble or complain about you at all. And I thought that because he had his hand on the lever that could drop me. But, but really, grumbling just feels natural, doesn't it? This idea that when we face pressure, that, that we find people around us that we can just spill on them. But grumbling breaks fellowship. You see, when, when you go and you're, you're, you're bad-mouthing another church member, you're, you're talking bad about somebody in the body, you're like, can you believe that they did so and so? You can believe they dress this way. Can you believe this is the way they choose to raise their children? And you're talking about them? Man, that, that breaks fellowship. That breaks the body. If you have such a, a low view of what it is to be a body of gathered believers when you do that, Man, that's completely unacceptable behavior. If you were to do that in the first century church, they would ask you to leave. They would ask you to, to remove yourself from fellowship. They would no longer break bread with you. They wouldn't have you in their homes. You couldn't take the Lord's Supper because it was so important for them to have fellowship with one another. But we're desensitized to it. We're so used to hearing grumbling and complaining because so often it's coming out of our own mouth. Guys, it, it, it breaks fellowship. And so whether you're, we spent a lot of time in Philippians talking about music. And we came to this idea, and I said it over and over again. We have no preferences other than to advance the gospel. But still we found people grumbling and complaining about people. I can't believe they would, 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 would raise their hands. Or I can't believe the volume would be this loud. Or I can't believe that we would do this or do that. Enough. Stop. Don't grumble. Don't complain against one another. It breaks fellowship. And maybe you hear that and you say, well, fellowship isn't so important. I don't even like the people I've broken fellowship with. In fact, now that I know it breaks fellowship, where did that guy go? I'm going to go, hey, I'd like to break our fellowship. Man, I got bad news for you. It's sinful. You do that and you're sinning. You're not just making it rough on yourself. You're not just you know, alienating yourself from the body and failing to get on board with what God is doing, but you're sinning against a holy and a perfect God. And you're putting yourself at great risk. You'll see that James goes on and he says, don't grumble against one another for what purpose? Why, why not, James? He says, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We see over and over again in the New Testament, we see it in Acts 10, 42, 2 Timothy 4, 1, and in 1 Peter 4, 5, that Jesus is at the door as a judge, and that he's coming to judge the living and to judge the dead. And in some ways, it's like we read that and we understand it and we say, yeah, but I'm, I'm saved. I've I've got salvation in Jesus. You see, I, I believe that he came and lived a perfectly sinless life. 
that he suffered unjustly at the hands of his creation, that he offered his life up as a sacrifice for my sins, that he died and was raised again on the third day and now sits at the right hand of God, beckoning all to come. You see, Matt, I believe those things. And so for me, there's no condemnation. There's only salvation. You see, but we flip over to 2 Corinthians. We flip over to 2 Corinthians 5.10, and we read this from Paul. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, when you grumble against one another when you complain, and when you just kind of blast people, when you verbally pummel them, and when you hold negative attitudes towards one another, and you don't highly cherish and value fellowship. You're being evil. You're sinning before God. Man, it is my obligation. It is, my, it is a mandate on my life to tell you, you've got to stop sinning. You've, you've just got to stop sinning in that regard. These selfish attitudes that you're propagating, this idea of tradition, this idea of whatever it is that you're holding on to and refusing to let go of, you're sinning. And man, there will come a day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the righteous indignation that, that you feel like you've been so just to hold on to you're going to answer for all those secret deeds and hidden attitudes and resentful mindset that you so piously held on to. You're going to stand before that seat and you're going to be ashamed and you're going to be sorrowful and it's going to be too late. In 2013, set your minds on the things of God. In 2013, no longer be satisfied to groan, no longer be satisfied to grumble, but find a way to do something great for God. James returns to this idea. He says, the judge is at the door. It's this terrifying feeling for the people that James writes to because as he writes this word and he says, no longer grumble against one another, the judge is at the door. I can remember doing something wrong when I was a kid, and then I would hear my dad grab the door handle and turn it, and I was so terrified. <laughs> Later on, I felt bad about what I did, but immediately I was terrified because I knew the judge was at the door. I can remember one time in particular, my dad, it was in the middle of winter in Norway, and like most children, I, I wanted a dog and wanted a dog and wanted a dog, and I finally got a dog, and I didn't want to walk the dog, and I didn't want to walk the dog, and I didn't want to walk the dog. And on top of that, I didn't want to clean out its kennel. But I wanted the dog. And so it was in the middle of winter, and I was watching some television show that was apparently just really formative in my life and, and meant a great deal to me. My dad told me, hey, you need to go outside and take, take the dog for a walk. So I stood up, and man, I'm grumbling and complaining, but I knew I couldn't say anything in front of him because that would exact swift justice. Nobody likes swift justice. So I waited until I got outside, and what I didn't take into account is how thin the windows were. And so as I'm walking along, my dad's here, I'm like, stupid. Can't you tell me what? What? Take care of the dog. 
I'm going to set him free. I'm going to let him go. I can't stand you. And so I took the dog for a walk and came back inside. My dad said, son, is there something you'd like to say to me on this side of the window? <laughs> I was like, I'll talk about the dog. Stupid dog, come here to me. Window, not soundproof. So we need to be careful with our attitudes because the judge is at the door. And this isn't some father who's going to use his best wisdom to discipline us. This is the king of the universe who knows all the secret deeds in our hearts, who knows all the secret motivations, who knows everything about us, even the things that we delude ourselves into thinking aren't there and aren't real. And friends, he's at the door and he stands ready to judge. Now James turns to verse 10 and 11 and he tries to give them some type of encouragement to help them be patient. And he does that by referencing the prophets. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, I, the first time I read this and I started thinking about the prophets and if, if you've read your Old Testament very much, you think back, and you start thinking through these guys, and you think of Elijah. Man, Elijah got to be taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And you think of Moses, and you're like, well, Moses wasn't very eloquent, but he got to have a, a rod turn into a snake. He got to turn the Nile into blood. He got to hold his arms up and have the, the Red Sea part. You think of Daniel, who got to hang out in a lion's den. He got to, to give input to a guy who was ruling a large portion of the world at that time. So I start reading this stuff about them, and all it tells me when I read this, or when I read this the first time, is, well, I'm not in the same kind of superhero slash prophet category. So, hey, I mean, that's great, but I'm probably, one, I don't want to be in a den of lions, and two, if I am, they're going to have a, a quick meal, and then, well, I, I'm not going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And I'm not going to stand in front of the Red Sea and hold my arms up and watch it be parted. And, and I probably will never get to ride on a chariot of fire. At least one that's going to fly into the sky. And so I started to think, well, this is kind of an odd thing that James did here. And then I came across this guy named Dan McCartney who had this to say about James's offering. He says, James did not include the prophets to show who show people of extraordinary powers who did marvels. But he included them to show how ordinary people who shared the common human experience of suffering became extraordinary through their persevering faith in the face of adversity. You remember Moses, a child born in a difficult circumstance, raised in the, in the household of his enemy, exiled from the lamb when he murdered an Egyptian guard, wandered around for quite a while, then he came back in, and God took this ordinary man who wasn't very eloquent, and he did something truly amazing with him. You'll remember that Daniel is just an ordinary guy living in exile, but that God takes him and places him in an extraordinary situation. And that Daniel is faithful, and that Moses is faithful, and that Elijah has himself wasn't anything special, but he was just someone who was faithful to the task. You see, friends, God is looking for people that will be faithful to the task. He's not looking for extraordinary people 
In fact, we see over and over again in Scripture and in history that God takes ordinary people and through them accomplishes extraordinary measures. God took a man named William Carey who was nothing more than a a shoemaker's assistant and he changed the face of how we do missions in this country. He took a man who is illiterate, put him in India, had him learn six or seven languages and translate the Bible into about a dozen languages and dialects. See, all God is looking for is people that would be willing and faithful to the task that he has put ahead of them. And then lastly, James points to the character of Job. You'll remember Job that in the beginning, Job was a man of extraordinary wealth, extraordinary prosperity, and an untarnished record in the community. But then he gets these reports, Job, all of your children are dead. Job, all of your livestock, all of your wealth has been taken. And he tears his cloth and he sits there with, with ashes and he sits there and he covers himself. But we see in all of this, the continued refrain of Job is that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You see, all the things that, that God allowed Job to go through, Job remained steadfast. It's the same idea that we saw back in 112. He says, blessed are you when you remain steadfast. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We see this idea is that as we remain steadfast to God, as we remain steadfast under trial, as we bear up and are patient in suffering, God is compassionate and he is merciful and he is making us into something that he can accomplish something extraordinary with. As we continue to sit here, I want us to think through three questions today. The first is is pretty obvious. How are you doing in displaying patience in the midst of your suffering? You know, merely sitting and being angry and not saying anything isn't being patient. So how are you doing in displaying patience in the midst of your suffering? Secondly, in light of the judgment of Christ, what area or areas of your life do you need to change? Where is God leading you to become more holy? Where is God leading you? And there's something I want us to think about for the remainder of the week. What are you going to do for God in the next year? What would God have you do to bring Him glory in the next year? Let me pray for us.